stand for this morning. We don't have to see God working for God to be working. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. And if you don't have your Bibles, we will have it on screen for you. Whenever we think through stories, there is a common practice that books and television, movies will use. And they'll show you the end at the beginning. And then they'll allow you to see how you got there. They'll let you know what took place and what the very end of the story is. And then they will tell you how you happened to arrive there. Since I, I got to Lake Jackson, I've done some weddings for church members. I did two this year. I'm on the verge of getting uh, a food truck and, and a DJ booth and just starting my own mix. Sell some wine and cheese. I took kids to a, a birthday party yesterday. And there was a little girl there who's around Nellie's at the wedding. And she started to stare at me. Which kind of throws me off because kids typically don't stare at me. And she was super polite. And she said, hey... You were in a wedding recently that my mom and my sister were in. And because I knew who this child was and knew her family, I, I had to acknowledge and affirm to her I certainly was. And she then said to me, Your little girl was at the wedding with you. Well, yes, she was. She was wearing a salmon-colored jumper. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't know what a salmon-colored jumper is, but I just shook my head, yes. And then she looked at me and she said, You're the pastor. I replied, I'm not the only one, but yes, I am a pastor. Well, she had this idea in her mind of where she had met me. She started to piece together the story of how I, who I was to recollect all of my interaction with her. In Mark's gospel, we see him doing something like that. Early on in the book, he tells us that where we're going to, toward at the end. He, he lets us know at the baptism of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now when you read through Mark's gospel, it's unlike any other gospel because throughout the entire book, no one ever acknowledges that Jesus is God until the very end. As a matter of fact, more often than not, when they see Jesus, when they see him do things, they're not sure as to how he's doing those things. It scares people, it mortifies people, it throws people off at times. But at the very end of the book, there's a centurion who is there while Jesus is being crucified. He was standing opposite of Jesus, and as Jesus breathed out his last breath, last breath, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. We have this full story. God begins letting us know where he's headed through the writer Mark. We end with him being the Son of God, and in the middle, we're figuring out, we're working through the context clues as to how we're going to arrive there. If you've got your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 4, picking up in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat. And the other boats were with him. 
And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking in over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern, Jesus, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're going to die? And he got up, he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Such little faith. And they were terrified. And they asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that we have just finished the conclusion of four parables of Jesus. We have the parable of the sower, the parable of the seeds, the parable of the mustard seeds. He works in another story in the midst of that about a light being on a stand. This is the same day as those parables. Jesus, the crowd is so large that Jesus has to sit in a boat to teach the people. He's in the boat. They're staring at him. They were, and as we notice that, Jesus is in the boat. He is ready to go because he's exhausted. Because he's been teaching people, interacting with people, speaking to people. And he tells the disciples, let's go to the other side. So in the boat that Jesus happens to be in, they head out. The other boats begin to follow them. The Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria. And they're crossing the water. And as they cross the water, the disciples more than likely have numerous things on their mind. They more than likely have everything that Jesus has just happened to say on their mind. They're thinking through the words of Jesus. They, they might even be running everything that he has said in these last few moments over and over in their brain, trying to figure out how this is going to lead to his revolution. How this mustard seed story ties to them overthrowing Rome. How the sower story ties to them being the primary nation in all of the world. They let their minds wander as they sit in the boat. Maybe they're so mesmerized that no one remembered that this part of the day is not the best time of the day to be crossing the water. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of their distraction, in the midst of Jesus' slumber, something terrible happens. Now, to appreciate the storm, you've got to know something about the Sea of Galilee. I've got a picture of the Sea of Galilee so that you can see what I'm about to describe. It's just a picture. It looks like water. Or words. So, it's a sea. It's a body of water. It is not very big. Uh, the, the disciples, they are fishermen and... For them, this is not really a big deal to be on the water unless it's a certain point of the day. The sea, as we read about it in the Bible, it symbolizes darkness and chaos. Creation emerges from the dark of the sea as God spoke in the, earth, in the, New, in the Old Testament. There are signs all around that the water, that is a storm, won't just impact the boat. If you and I were to go to the Sea of Galilee right now, what we would notice as a people is there are signs there for parked cars. Because if there's a storm that comes out of nowhere, then the water may impact your car. It's a terrible thing for your car to be impacted. If you're parked too close, it could 
turn your car over, destroy your car. There are hills and mountains that are surrounding the sea. It's shaped like a pear, so we have a lot in common. Uh, there are, it's 13 miles long. It's 7 miles across. The hill goes up about 1,400 feet, and the mountains go over 2,500 feet. The sea itself is actually about 700 feet below sea level. So you've got these mountains around it, and then the lake dips way, way down. Because of this setup, the Sea of Galilee is known for these storms. They come out of nowhere. The reason is because the cool winds pass over the mountains on the east and the lake, and they drop down onto the warm air that's, on, that's sitting on the water. Cold air, according to meteorologists, is heavier than warm air, and it drops. And as the warm air naturally rises, it creates this storm out of nowhere. Chaos. The storm here is called a squall. And Jesus and the disciples are there in the boat when this storm comes out of nowhere, upending, throwing over the peaceful night of sleep that Jesus happens to be in the middle of. Turns into this violent, fight-for-your-life kind of storm. The disciples are in their boat. They're wearing their Columbia shirts and their Magellan shirts. And they begin to look for Jesus. Wondering where he is because after all he's been talking about this rebellion slash revolution and if that's going to happen he has to be there. He cannot die in the storm. A great windstorm arose, verse 37, and the waves were breaking over the boat. So the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are going to drown? This situation has gotten so bad that a group of fishermen go to ask a carpenter for advice. And when they get to Jesus, they want to talk to him about the storm. Now we know the disciples are our fishermen and that's a big part of our entire understanding of them. But for the Jewish people, they're not really that. It's a different thing altogether. For them to be fishermen is almost an abnormality in their culture, in their world. Because everywhere in the Old Testament that it talks about water, water is impactful upon your everyday life. Darkness, chaos, swarming, swirling. In Daniel chapter 7, if you would like to imagine Godzilla, it talks about monsters coming from the depths of the water. They don't have a lot to do with water. And for the storm to be coming, the disciples, in all of their history, in every one of their legends, it's all tied to the idea that this is their end. The disciples are tested and Jesus is resting. The storm is roaring and this teacher, he's snoring. Have you been there? Have you ever had a moment in your life when you wrestled with the idea that Jesus does not seem to care about your situation? The point of this story, now, this passage can be mistaught, even abused at times, when we make the whole thing about the idea that Jesus is going to meet you in your storm. So you look at your bankruptcy, or you look at your stubbed toe, or you look at inflation. Every time you drive by a gas station or try to buy a loaf of bread, I mean $7.50. But this, the passage isn't really about that. That's a secondary the tertiary point that Mark may be making. But here for these disciples, what we believe and know to be secondary and tertiary points, it's their main point. Does he really care? Does he care?
there's sometimes in the hardships of our lives where we may wonder if Jesus really cares. Where it may be a struggle for us to know and acknowledge and believe that this Jesus really cares. Do you know what my year was? Do you really care? Do you know how my family has been financially impacted? And if you do, why does it not seem like you care? We get the benefit of hindsight when we read through a passage like this. And we do not need to detach ourselves from the reality of the disciples as we read it. Does he care? Have you been there? Are you there right now? Does he really care about me? He got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Silence, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. That doesn't quite convey what actually happens, the word great. The CSB is my favorite translation to work from, but the idea of calm there is dead calm. If you've been on a boat, and you've been on a boat, I mean, we're right there. The, the brown water is not far from us. You all know how this works. You've got your, your, you've got your bathing suit for when you're in Lake Jackson and Galveston, and then your bathing suit for every other water on earth. We've been on water. The storm comes up. If you are brave enough to be out there, when the storm ceases, it doesn't become dead calm. That's not how it works. The water becomes dead calm because the voice that spoke into existence has spoken to it again. The same voice that told it to separate, it's told it to stop. And here we see the unfolding picture of who Jesus happens to be. They're terrified. They're overwhelmed. And we see the word afraid in this passage. We don't just see it once, we see it twice. It's a different word. The first word is a notion of natural fear. Maybe you've been naturally afraid running from a dog. You'd forgotten your weapon. Maybe you've been in a storm. Maybe the weather was so bad you did not know what to do. Maybe there's something taking place in your neighborhood that makes you uncomfortable. A sense of fear. This fear here is a supernatural idea. It's tension with what they happen to be experiencing because they have signed up for Jesus to be the Messiah. And now he's doing things that are bigger than that. Now he's doing things that aren't things that normal, natural people do. I mean, at the, up to this point, they've seen him cast out demons, but other people had cast out demons, or so they thought. They've seen him heal sick people, but here, this Jesus, he's speaking to water, and the water listens. 
This doesn't just reveal the power of Jesus. It reveals his actual identity. Because the Old Testament talks about chaos on the water. As I mentioned earlier. Psalm 65.5. It tells us this. You answer us in righteousness with all inspiring works, God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the distant seas. Psalm 89 says this. Lord God of armies, who is strong like you, Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging sea. When its waves surge, you still them. Job 38. Were you there when I limited the sea? That's the question that Job is asked by Yahweh himself. When we read through a rapid-fire listing of texts where we see the, the sea interacted with, Psalm 18, 15, 1047, Nahum 1.4, which is probably your devotional this morning. So, Psalm 106.9, over and over in the Bible, we see that God alone controls water, controls waves, con- controls chaos. They started out afraid of the storm, and now they are afraid of the man who controls it. One pastor friend of mine says this, that miracles give us a glimpse of the way that things are supposed to be. And this is giving us a glimpse that chaos is not so chaotic that Jesus is not Lord. The passage is taking us to the idea that this Jesus, who we say that we know and who we believe to be the Son of God, who we get the privilege of hindsight, when we look at Him and see, we see His death, we see His resurrection, we get a virgin birth, all of these things. These disciples in real time are interacting with that Jesus, and that Jesus says to water, stop, and it stops. That's Jesus. So you've got Jesus here in this passage. Dealing with a storm. But the best picture that we have in the Psalms is in 107. Because in Psalm 107, you get what we call a theophany or maybe even a Christophany. If you are unfamiliar, that is a a, a term that means that you see Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament. It's a foreshadowing idea. In Psalm 107, beginning in verse 23... It says, others went to sea in ships, conducting the trade on the vast water. They saw the Lord's work. They saw His wondrous works in the deep. He spoke and He raised a stormy wind that stirred up the waves of the sea. Rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths, their courage melting away in anguish. They reeled and they staggered like a drunkard. And all their skill was useless. All of their water-faring skills were gone. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. And the waves of the sea were hushed. They rejoiced when the waves grew great, grew quiet. Then He guided them to the harbor that they longed for. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His faithful love and His wondrous works for all humanity. Let them exalt Him in the assembly of the people and praise Him in the council of the elders. Psalm 107 is foreshadowing what we see in the person of Jesus. What we see in this moment when Jesus is on water. Colossians echoes of it. 
when it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, for everything was made for Him and by Him, and all things were for His good pleasure. We see this throughout the Scripture, and right here we have a snapshot of the whole teaching of of the story of Mark. Right here in this moment, in Mark chapter 4, where we read of Jesus speaking to a storm, and the storm listening. We get a microcosm. If that's a word you're unfamiliar with, it's a snapshot. The actual definition, according to my Google search, is a community, place, or in this case, a situation regarded as encapsulating in miniature the characteristic qualities or features of something much larger. Here in Mark 4, just a few chapters in, we see rumblings of what is to come. Just isn't done here. Here is Jesus with the disciples going about his business, crossing from one place to the next, leading them, and chaos arises. Jesus is asleep and they wonder if he cares. Because in that moment, it seemed as if death and hell had won. At the end of Mark, Jesus and his disciples will be going about their business. In the form of angry men, Jesus will be captured. He will be put to death. Chaos arising. And there will be a point where Jesus is asleep slumped on a cross, eventually buried in a tomb. And it seems as if death and hell have won. In our lives as followers of Jesus, how often are we going about our business, doing our best to follow Him, everything we can to trust Him? Chaos arises. And it seems like Jesus is asleep. It will seem as if death and hell have won. Do you have those days? And when we do, will we hear his voice saying to us, Trust me. Mark is the, the kindest of the three accounts of this story. Because Jesus alludes according to what Mark writes down as he listens to Peter, because Peter told him the story more than likely. You have little faith. I have no faith. It's a caring thing. It's Jesus urging these men who have trusted him this far to keep trusting him. You can trust me more. Keep believing. Don't stop believing. The point of this passage, friends, is not that Jesus cares for you. The point of this passage is that we need to trust him because he's the only one who can. Because on the third day, the storm is still, the tomb is empty. 
and great reverence, great fear overthrows everyone who's looking. Who is this man? Creation responds to Jesus. Be still. Chaos and hell respond to Jesus. Death responds to Jesus. Will we? Will we? Or will we live in this perpetual loop of saying to Jesus, how can you really care because the storms are all around me? He's the only one who can care for you in that. For us as a family of faith, we take communion. Uh, and when we take communion, it, it's, it's important for us because it is a consideration of all that God has done for us in Jesus. And if you've ever been around a church like this, maybe you're not sure as to if you should take this. For us, we practice communion where if you are a believer in Jesus, you have trusted in Christ's death and in His resurrection as your only hope, as His de declaration that He cares for you. You can cast your cares and your sins upon Him because He cares for you. If you're here and you've trusted in Christ for that purpose, for that point, Jesus' death in your place, His life in your place, His undoing of chaos for you, His undoing of death for you. You don't have to be a member necessarily here, but you can take communion with our family of faith. If you are in this room and you do not trust in Jesus, let me warn you on the front side, it's just bread and a sip of juice. It's barely enough to wash it down. But for us as God's people, those who believe in Jesus, who trust in Jesus, this is us remembering that Jesus cares for us because he died in our place and he's resurrected to defeat sin and death and hell. So if you're not a member here, please don't take communion. I mean, if, rather, if you're not a believing person in Jesus here, don't take communion. But if you are a believer, you are invited with us to take this in just a few moments. But before we do... I would invite you just to take a moment right now to bow your head, to wrestle in your heart with what's been said this morning from Scripture. Of how God has spoken to us from His Word this morning. Of how Jesus has invited us in the chaos to trust Him. Because He's the only one who can do anything about it. Would you take a few moments and, and interact with him if you're a believing person here today? Jesus, I trust you. Maybe wrestling with your own sin and what this last week looked like. Jesus, I trust you. I believe you. Jerry will give us just in a few moments opportunity to move. If you are present with us this morning and you would like for me to pray with you or for you, I'm in the back, my right hand, your left hand corner of the room. 
If you've never placed your faith in Jesus and you want to do that, I'll be there. I'd love to talk to you and set up a time to interact with you even further about what we celebrate when we celebrate his death and his resurrection as his undoing of chaos and death and hell.